Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cracked Up, the podcast where we talk about everything that makes us feel broken. And Randy, help me out here. Yeah, we're going to talk about just how hard this life can be and what it's like to not feel okay. Today we have an amazing guest on our show, William Perez. He is a licensed clinical social worker and an old colleague of mine, and he's also a fourth-year candidate of psychoanalytic training. Will, welcome. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, uh, Randy. Uh, Hi, Angelica. Let's see, what can I tell you about myself? I am an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. I am a father of two. I have been in human services for about 17 years now. I became a licensed clinical social worker fairly recently, earlier this year, after the many, many years it takes to accrue hours and and supervision. And in the meantime, I have been at an analytic training institute learning about psychoanalysis. Psychoanalytics is a pretty prominent modality of therapy, right? Can you explain to us what it is and why it's come to be so popular? So psychoanalysis, if we go back to what most people think about, is about making the unconscious conscious. And that's sort of a very old and not completely accurate definition of what psychoanalysis is. Initially, it was mostly about making the unconscious conscious, but in time, it became elaborated into different schools with different approaches. It all, of course, began with Freud and working with drives and working with defenses. Just because I like to really simplify it. The basic idea, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you'll be completely off in the way I'm condensing Mm -hmm. it. You talk to hear yourself and then realize yourself, basically. Is that more in line with what psychoanalysis is? like? And then to break apart the reasons why you have these thoughts. Give me, give me more because the making the unconscious conscious is such an abstract. And once some people hear that language, they turn right mm-hmm. off. They're like, "Oh, this is too complicated for me." I see. I see. Well, okay. Well, can I jump in and, and give an analogy that I think we were just talking about this the other day? We had a training, a very brief, brief training. We worked together, and I think his guy, his name was Max, and he was explaining to us what psychoanalysis was. And the analogy he gave was. Psychoanalysis is, you know, instead of going to like regular therapy, we'll call it, where you have difference of like vanilla and chocolate ice cream flavors. Psychoanalysis is like going to Baskin Robbins where you have 31 different flavors of ice cream and 31 flavors kind of represents like different layers, right? Different layers of consciousness and agency of the mind and having that much access to what's really happening subconsciously. Does that make sense? Well, what is a practice of revealing those layers. I I guess I can explain it this way. We all do stuff, right? Every day we do stuff, we wake up, we do stuff. There's a ton of stuff that we do automatically or what they call non-declarative stuff, stuff that's been made automatic. Mm -hmm. There are tons of other things that we do without knowing why we do them. And some of those things aren't just regular motor function stuff like breathing. Mm -hmm. Some of these things have to do with what our experience with the environment and our constitution, right? Because we're all born different, are. So for instance, I could be the kind of person that engages in a very specific pattern of relationships and I don't know why, even though consciously I fully know these kind of people just do not work out for me. 
but it is the only kind of people I am attracted to. Mm. Right? So it could start off that you had some sort of minor or major traumas when you were a baby, right? Where you weren't paid this, the right sort of attention, right? And that's what is usually called like a, a, a pre-edible trauma or, or complication. So you go through life and you're essentially missing parts of your mind, of your psyche. There are situations you won't be able to manage because you just don't have those parts. For instance? A certain aspects of empathy, right? Or, or what we become frustrated with, mm-hmm. which other people might not become frustrated with. And we know a lot of people like that. Like, why does this person get bothered so much by this pumpkin spice donut? It's an example, <laughs> right? Or to bring it home, we'll all have somebody in the office that gets bothered by something that isn't, doesn't seem to bother anybody else. Mm. That could be a hint at this person might have missed something or there's an incapacity in managing some sort of frustration that other people don't. Is it bringing it back? Because it's like you're talking about our early coding, right? Like, and I know it's, mm-hmm. it's, you're saying you do it in different stages of life based on what they're hung up on or stuck in or repeated behavior. You're exploring that and the reasons for it. But like with the early coding, you use the example of they didn't get the attention because we all have this primal need for a certain level of affection and attention from primary caregivers. Is it that they're seeking out to fulfill that need for attention or that they're unfamiliar with that need for the, for healthy attention? So they're seeking out the opposite or could it be either or? It could be either or. Okay. And in this case, the example I gave when we're talking about stuff that's so in the beginning it's not so much about seeking, it's about function, right? There are just ways uh, that a person can't function because they didn't get either that attention or they got excessive attention or they got a mixed bag. As the baby becomes a little older, then we're talking about different things, different things that are about seeking out what you didn't get, different things that are about an aversion to something that you got too much of or that you experienced in a way before you can under- could understand it that didn't sit well with you right Mm -hmm. and and so on and so forth you keep going and going uh up until you're an adult and all these things result in either you know deficits or or an excess of something or an intolerance towards something because of whatever reason and all these things you're navigating the world with without knowing that they're they're moving you right Mm -hmm. i could be moved towards something without having a conscious idea of what's moving me. So what an analyst would do, and this is these are very broad strokes, is give you insight into, it sounds like you had this experience as a child or as a young person, and that puts you in a position to need this or to have an intolerance to this or anything within, within all those domains. But it's not just like you come in one day, I say, you seem to have an aversion towards pump, pumpkin spice donuts. Let's talk about it. This is why you have that aversion, right? You fell, you hit your head on a pumpkin. <laughs> and after that, you have, you just, it's a silly example, but it's an example. <laughs> and then that's not just happening in that one circumstance. These things act on you in many different circumstances. And then throughout time, your therapist would be giving you like, this is again, this, this is again, this, this is again, this. 
until the person can realize even before, oh, that's this. I know it because this, this, and this. So it's, and, you know, having gone through quite a bit of therapy myself and practicing this, like being on the receiving end of therapy, it's basically talking through it, offering possibilities to help almost like a self-actualization, right? And and if someone can recognize their behaviors in a in a different perspective than the shock of what it was when they experienced it, they're capable of then moving forward with other tools to change. Yeah, that that's that's a part of it, right? Or also you have an awareness of something because you've been talking about this sort of thing for quite a while and you move on to a position from where you can anticipate things plan for things because you can anticipate them or know that when you something calls your attention or a person calls your attention you have an idea what that's about so you come you're walking into these situations with consciousness right and and when you know something in your mind it's actionable as opposed to just automatically falling into always dating the same kind of person over and over because of something that you don't know what it is. Yeah, let's talk about dating. Let's talk about relationships. Um, because I know when I reached out to Will to talk about psychoanalysis, he was like, well, what are we gonna focus on? Because it's so general, right? It's such a broad topic. So let's talk a little bit about relationships and maybe relational trauma, right? Because I, you know, my understanding is our relationships with our, you know, primary givers kind of sets the tone for how we show up in other relationships in adulthood. And again, if there's some kind of relational trauma, we suppress it, right? And then unconsciously play out these dynamics in certain relationships for better or for worse. And like Will said, unless you become aware of these dynamics, you will play out the same patterns and if you're like myself, you'll date your mom a couple times and then your dad a couple times in all different forms. But Will, can you tell us a little bit about maybe relational trauma and how you could work through some of those things in psychoanalysis? When it comes to relationships, the first thing that comes to my mind, there are many others, but is object relations, right? And that's sort of the the second big wave. In, in, in psychoanalysis, the first being like ego and drive with Freud and, and Freud's daughter. One of the ways that our relationships or our approaches to people change is because of something that we learn about in social work and mental health school, internalizations. We internalize aspects of initially our parents or whoever we have when we're kids and later on other early relationships, like when we're teenagers. So depending on the sort of relationship you had with your mother and how you experienced your mother or your father, you will have attractions and aversions to, to certain things and other people, right? For example, I end up with a lot of women who had short dads. Most of them had fathers that were under like five, five. Ah. So they see me, it's like, oh, this reminds me of something about this is comfortable. So yeah. What is it? I don't know. I, I'm going to go talk to that little guy. <laughs> so that's a, a silly way of saying how these relationships when you're a child can shape how you approach things. Now, let's say that that same person had a father who wasn't great. And that person had a, a terrible, short and stout father. They're looking for a tall man. <laughs> they're looking for, they're running, they, they are running away from Will Perez, because yeah. I, I see him over there, he's short, 
he stopped. I bet he's like this, like this, and like this, because dad was like this, like this, and like this. Wow. Not knowing that I could be a completely different person or being unaware of the fact that... That's why they're doing it. Yeah, that's coming from my experience with dad. Wow. Right? That's one example. Or the way you feel about yourself in approaching people, right? That can also be influenced by the, these early relationships that you have. Just anecdotally, your example is friggin' great because I've been in with a new therapist recently and we were going over some of my trauma triggers that I'm dealing with right now. And I came to realize, <laughs> and Randy, you can attest to this, I early on dated men much shorter than me. <laughs> I realized recently, oh, I was doing that because I felt like they couldn't physically hurt me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And just to give you an idea, well, I'm like a quarter inch shy of being six feet tall. Oh, my. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just to give you that picture. <laughs> I am about yeah. a foot shy of being six feet tall. Now, I'm not that short, <laughs> but I'm pretty short. Yeah. yeah. So th that's that's just a very funny and, and, and simple example of how early relationships can affect the relationships that you can have moving forward. And that can go in, into many things. How you feel about yourself in relation to other people and where these thoughts are coming from. Right? I could think that I have absolutely no shot with I'll, I'll use the same example. A woman of 5'10". I have no shot. And it could be observation, right? That's tall women don't tend to be with short guys, which isn't completely unless true. Unless you're me. <laughs> or unless you're me, right? I could be hearing these voices or thoughts that I consider my own in, in thoughts about approach. And they could be the voice of my mother, for instance, mm -hmm. or who my mother was, which is the most important part of that of who my mother was when I learned these things. And I attribute these thoughts to myself. Oh, it's impossible for me. There's no way I would need a stepladder, etc. But it could be, let's say I had a mom that didn't believe in me. I had a mom that believed in me maybe a little too much. So I'm like, it's nothing. I have plenty of stepladders at home. I can make it work. It'll be fine. That's great, though. You're confident. Oh, absolutely. Because of mom, right? I had a great mom. So these are the things that, that move us. And another example of things that move us and we, we don't know where they come from. And, and when you think of everything is affected by these unconscious thoughts, thoughts are automatic and pop up into our mind unless we're very well trained and sort of dealing with them. I love the what you're saying, like the way you just said it there is like so poignant and beautiful, the things that move us, because I think I think we are culturally at a place now where people are being more aware of the fact that your thoughts are very much a part of what's driving you and what's determining your life. And people call it your energy output, your energy flow, and have all other words for it. But like drawing yourself in and becoming very conscious, kind of like a witness of your own thoughts is so important, helping you navigate and be empowered to navigate your life. And it sounds like psychoanalysis is is a tool being used to help people clear the shit out and do that right or or, or learning to walk around the shit yeah right because clearing the shit out maybe some of it right you That's, can't always get rid of all of it but it's yeah. a manure field well it's also like bringing it back to relationships and i have this conversation with randy often is like how long and how often do we even have friends who do this but we've also personally done it where it's like you keep dating the same type 
And no matter how many, you keep doing it, you keep, and you're like, why am I banging my head against this brick wall? Like, why do I, I just keep doing it and oh, it's the same again. And it's because you can be aware of it, right? But like you still, there's still parts of you that just have to cycle through it yeah. fully, I yes. think, right? Yeah. Like. It's not just the nature of the relationship. It's also what's, what's, what's driving it. Right. In my practice, I talk a lot about core beliefs and, and maybe I overlap a little psychodynamic, but there's like these stories that our ego is kind of attached to, like Will said, you know, stories based on the, we'll say the beliefs that we've, uh, I don't know, created based on the relationships with mom and dad or our primary caregivers. So once our ego kind of attaches to the story, which is subconscious, right? We don't know it. We'll play out these stories with so many different people. And like you said, Angelica, we sometimes we are conscious of it. And like, okay, I'm playing out this story again. Why? I know it. I know this is not the person for me. I know I deserve better, but I'm still playing out the story. Um, something is still happening, right? Like, why are we, maybe, Will, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Once we have the conscious awareness of, I'm dating my mom again and I can't, you know, for me, um, you know, I tend to date people who need a little help because my mother was an alcoholic. So I'm like the savior, like I can fix them. I can make them better. How do you go from the conscious awareness of it to finally saying, I am not fixing my mom's alcoholism through my partners? Well, that's another example of where awareness can help you because it's not just the the relationship the object relationship there's there could also be a motivation based on you trying to master something mm. right i'm i'm doing this over and over until i get the result that i want i'm not aware of why i'm doing it but i'm going over and over and over and over until the result is different meanwhile i'm not aware of the fact that that that's what's driving it or the opposite happens too where i don't want to be in that situation ever again the opposite path towards it. So when you get, for example, victims, victims sometimes, or survivors is a better word. Survivors sometimes put themselves in the same situation where something happened to them so that they can come out on top this time. Mm -hmm. And that's not as simple as me going into an alleyway, picking up a pipe and be like, hey, you guy, let's, I need to master something. Come here. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know that I'm putting myself in, myself in a situation with a romantic partner, for instance, over and over because I need to shift the power dynamic in that sort of relationship so that I can move on. But, and couldn't, God damn. Okay. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm obviously going through something over here. Um, <laughs> in a way, if you can do it, isn't that therapy in itself? <laughs> no. Yes. It, 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 it could be. It could, no. <laughs> Don't it could do be. it. <laughs> there are plenty of, there are plenty of, harmful things that we find therapeutic, right? That that we use to cope. I could drink a, a, a whole bar full of alcohol and feel better about the breakup I had yesterday. But is that really in the long term, what's going to get you where you need to be? No, but we, I want to know the difference really, because like, that's obvious, right? No one should be drinking a whole bar of liquor. I don't care who you are. But that said, and I think this is coming up because we talked to a sex therapist. And she said there are certain, and sex, I mean, you have to listen to that episode because my mind was blown wide open, realizing I did not understand the scope of what sex therapy is. And it doesn't just live in this trauma-based 
place that I'm about to speak about. But she had said there is a, a version of sex therapy in the, I don't want to misstate it. I think it was in the kink world mm-hmm. where people play out the situations that they were a uh, survivor of, but in a way where they could come out on top in mm-hmm. order to heal. And granted, that's like they're active participants, both of them, both players knowing that this is what we're doing this for. Like a so ro- may, okay, I just answered my own question. So, so now imagine if my partner person. doesn't understand that's what I'm in this for, and they're just being them, then it's still a brick wall. Got it. Okay. Or <laughs> in that example, there's a partner. In other examples, there are strangers. Or I'm trying to come out on top in that situation and just end up being victimized again. Re-victimized. Yeah. Yeah. Re-victimized yeah. over so and how, over. So like. In your practice, like, how do you guide someone to not just be conscious of it and conscious of the multi-layers that are driving them, but, like, then shift it? But, like, what you're saying, Will, can it also be, it can reinforce the story. And I think, and this is what I work with a lot of my patients on in, in relationship context is, the the story we're subconsciously playing out with individuals for for me i'll speak for myself is like can i heal this person you know it's my mom's alcoholism right i'm trying to fix the alcoholism i feel like that's layer one layer two is my self-worth is contingent on completing this story successfully so if i can get this person to love me over their alcohol or drug of choice whatever it is could be a workaholic alcoholic whatever then, you know, if I can complete this story successfully, then I know I'm worth it. But that doesn't always play out that way because you're attracted to the people who are, are, are already addicted to something or attached to something in a way that inhibits them from loving you. So my ego story is constantly reinforced because I these people, you can't fix them. So guess what? They never love you the way you need to be loved. And your ego once again says, I knew it was true. I knew I wasn't worthy of the love. Right? And it's not your job to fix them. But it's it's not job, <laughs> but it's not that's not how it works. Right? It's it's my, did my mom love me enough because of her issues? The story I've made up is no, she hasn't. I wasn't worthy of the love because her drug of choice was more important, right? And this can look like so many different things, right? Because my father was a workaholic, he didn't pay enough attention to me or whatever. So isn't it, aren't you also reinforcing these stories in a subconscious and very detrimental way? That's essentially how people end up in our offices. Hello. <laughs> these situations are calcified. They're convinced of how things are because they have proof, they have evidence. What they don't have is the complete story. Right. And they don't have the whole story. Like that example about, does did mom love me more than this? It's like, the example of my father and myself. To me, my mother is the son. Right? There's nothing beyond my mother. My father is the most responsible man in the universe. Yep, he might as well be like the stereotypical German. Right? Mm-hmm. I'll be there at five o'clock. He is there. Is he a Capricorn? Way before. Him. <laughs> he is a Sagittarius. Oh, right. He's a he's a five foot three. Will is an Aquarius. I, I am an Aquarius. Right. In my story, for instance, my father was a villain. 
right? This is this man. He lost my mom. I don't know what he was thinking. She's a gorgeous woman. He was too dry. He didn't know how to give her affection. My mother's a very affectionate, very passionate, gorgeous woman. You wouldn't know it by looking. You look at my sister, you'll get why, right? <laughs> Whose name is also Angelica, by the way. Ah, nice. Whoa. So it's 11, in 11 my... right now, just going to put that out there. You're what? Oh, that's weird. <laughs> We're doing some oh, stuff. Oh well, <laughs> I used to get someone who used to text me every day at 11, 11. It, 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 I hated it. I'm not, I'm not a superstitious person right i'm not superstitious okay. I don't so wait wait let's take it back to you though then so, so with my that situation man. like are you you're into really passionate loving women or are you the really passionate loving one in the relationship both i like this is not my therapy but i guess i'll share was <laughs> raw that's how we like this podcast <laughs> so i learned through therapy that I'm attracted to women that are like my mother in certain ways. I like women that, like my mother, always presented herself very elegantly. My mother's a very elegant woman. My mother will not go to what they here call a bodega. Over there, it's a colmado oh. without makeup. Wow. Right? She's never dressed in anything that's not fabulous, right? So the women I gravitate to are women who really tend to their appearance, who are very feminine, who have a strong character, because my mother is a tough little five-foot-tall woman who won't allow themselves to be sort of run over. My mother fights. My mother, if she has to fight, she'll fight. She has no problem very elegantly telling you to go fuck off. <laughs> I love it. I like women that are like that, except I might be attracted to taller women and that ha might have something more to do with my old men, as an example, or because there just aren't that many women that are shorter than I am in New York. <laughs> really? So, in New York? New York has everything. Listen, short, short women don't like short guys. I, I, I've learned that. Tall men don't like tall women. Oh, my God. It's so true. I'm going to start. <laughs> attending WNBA games and see how my, my luck goes there. I'm telling you, tall men do not like tall women. They want the little, little ladies. That so they're all taken. Feel. That's what yeah. it is. They're all taken. <laughs> wait, wait. Let's so, go back to, Will, you, you're talking about the story, the, the character you created, essentially, about who dad was, right? Objectively, yeah. we'll say, or in some perceptions, dad was a very reliable uh, responsible man. In your story, he was the the villain. Tell us more about that. Because he 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 didn't have the space, or he never really engaged or approached me, or at least that's the memory I had when I was a younger person. He he no. was like the provider, and your mother yeah. did the caring for the children. Yes, that was before they were divorced, right? My mother was always all about us. Uh, and back then, my father was present, but when my parents separated, I went back to the island for 16 years straight, and oh, wow. maybe a few years after I got there, I got there in 89, my grandfather, who was to me my father figure, because I was nine, uh, passed away when I was 14, and right before he passed away, my father came back to the island to tend to the family business, so I was 
devastated because the person that in my mind was father-like had passed away and my old man came in with the rules essentially and at 14 the last thing you need is rules especially right after your grandfather had died so to me i was like what's up with this dude what's what's his expectation here so how did how did this coding like this like oh i hated my dad until i was until not that long ago not hate hate's a strong word i didn't like him but how did that translate to your relationships well it didn't quite translate into my relationships it translated into what i was looking for right what i what i what i sought after after my grandfather died was uh, a master a teacher uh someone to teach me how to be a man someone to teach me anything really Mm. right um my dad tried a couple of times he approached me with things that he was interested in like model airplanes and jazz i tried once i crashed his little plane i was like here i'm not trying this again (laughs) this looks dangerous i can't be this is not like a nintendo controller i can't figure it out i love jazz but he took me to a don pullen concert and i think that was a little too advanced for me when i was a teenager like this sucks i want some boys to men that's what i'm into right now right and i have to give it to the guy he was exceptionally patient Mm. so what ended up happening is that these masters were outsourced. My dad got me a person to teach me how to write adequately. My dad, that same guy taught me etiquette, how to use a knife, a fork, how to tie a tie, and that sort of thing. What I didn't like about him was that I didn't feel comfortable, for example, giving the man a hug. Affection between my father and I was weird. It felt weird. And when I started therapy, which wasn't that long, maybe, what, I want to say six years ago, I began understanding that this man cannot give me what he was never given. Mm, wow. You can't give what you don't have. Right. There are missing parts there. Wow. So my grandfather, not the one that passed away, my biological grandfather, because the man that passed away was my father's stepfather, was a, a crooner that went from province to province with his guitar and magic, I guess would be the best way to put it. Uh, going from woman to woman and not really having a relationship with my old man. Mm, okay. Very talented singer. I heard some of his stuff. It was beautiful. <laughs> but he never gave any of the things that you give a son to my father. Yeah. And my grandmother, by virtue of that man being the charlatan that he was, very good-looking charlatan, let's keep it real, it's a good-looking good guy, <laughs> uh, was a very iron-fisted woman, very tough four foot 11 woman who wasn't uh, also wasn't particularly affectionate so where's this man gonna get these things from to give to me you've been practicing or studying therapy for a long time but you've only started your own personal therapy six years ago what drove you to that a breakup a breakup and a new relationship Mm. so i i was in a very i was in a terrible relationship for a long time with a woman that fit those patterns perfectly, uh, masterfully, I would say. Mm-hmm. What patterns? Because... Like your father or? No, the things oh. that, that attracted me to women that were like my mother. She was oh. like a black belt in all that stuff. Very, very beautiful, elegant, uh, sensual, intelligent woman who was tough as nails and made my life hell. 
See, like you say all these beautiful attributes that you said, and my life was hell. <laughs> Tell us more. Why was your life Yeah. Hell? Like what, what, how did all those ingredients turn to hell? So now as a professional, I can see that there were a combination of things. There was a predominantly narcissistic character, right? There was what I assume now were the early stages of a bipolarity. Uh, there was a whole bunch of stuff that really didn't have anything to do with me, but that manifested in the relationship. And it was always very messy and a lot of jealousy and a lot of this and a lot of that. Uh, but I was head over heels. At one point, I found myself obligated to end that relationship. And very briefly afterwards, I started another relationship, which is another one of those pesky patterns that aren't healthy. Uh, and I ended up with the most kind, magnificent woman in the world but i couldn't appreciate it i couldn't see past inconsequential things all because i was approaching it with a frame of early experience which is what drove me to the really pathological relationship that same thing didn't allow me to appreciate what was the healthiest ever relationship i could have and that woman was briefly my wife who was to this day still my my best friend through therapy i i saw certain things that brought me to an idea of what my aversion was that i would say have since been worked through too late though but mm. it's like putting on glasses i had the wrong glasses on was it like towards the end of the relationship that you sought help or was that that with the healthy relationship was that ended no i sought help after the bad relationship ended. Oh, you did. Okay. And I started therapy at the same time that I started the good relationship, which I didn't see as good. Uh, but the therapist I had back then, I don't think was capable of helping me. So then I started working with the person I work with now. And that's actually how my journey into analysis started, because I saw the diploma was on the wall and I got curious and I started asking. I went to work at another place and that person is still to this day, my mentor also went to the same institute that my therapist went to. Mm. And what little superstition I have took over. And I was like, I have to go to this place and learn what these people know. Because these both of these guys are brilliant. And I can't be not brilliant. I'm a narcissist. I have to. I have to be the most brilliant person. And that's how I ended up at that institute. You're a self-admitted narcissist? So that's an interesting word. It's one of our favorites to discuss. <laughs> the way narcissism is used is a very similar way in which empath is used. Yeah. Now, like, I'm an empath. It's like, are you? Right. Can you can you feel my feelings right now? Because you'd be running <laughs> if you could. You would be running if you could feel my feelings. Because you just see. You, you know what I do empath. sometimes is I I stay very straight faced and I internally make my feelings so clear about someone in hopes that they run because <laughs> I don't want to have to tell you get the fuck out of my face <laughs> yeah so people use it doesn't work though I, I think it will but it doesn't <laughs> there, there are ways I'll, I'll show you when okay. we all meet in person um, I love that I heard the word empath when I was a teenager and it only happened in sci-fi movies where the person was kind of psychic or whatever. And then for some reason, after the real world ended, which was in the 90s, and everything <laughs> got all kooky, that word became like, no, but I'm an empath. I can feel it. It's like, you, you can't feel it. You can't <laughs> Wait, possibly feel it. I do want to say this, though, because I know where you're, I think I know where you're going with this. But 
I will tell you, I and I think it's similar for people who love animals. I love being around children. I adore them because I rather, if I go to a party and there's kids there, I rather hang with the kids than the adults, especially if it's people I don't know. And I'd rather hang with the animals. So tell us what that means. <laughs> because to me, little children and animals are stripped with the bullshit garbage coating we as grown-ups accumulate over time through life, through culture, and it blocks us from what I think is innately real to existence, which is this true sense of empathy, this true ability to sense and read other people. Yes, I mean, the thing about kids and the thing about animals is that they keep it real. Yeah. Right, they keep it real. My daughter would draw something. She'd draw my face. And I'd say, honey, I call her princess. Princess, why are my teeth orange in your drawing? Well, daddy, your teeth are orange. Your teeth are orange. I'll get the crayon and I'll show you. I've since addressed that. I don't drink as much coffee as I used to. They keep it real, right? If 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 you approach a dog, a dog may have a sense of if you're a good person or a bad person only based on their owner's reaction. The difference is the dog keeps it real. But the empathy is there. They they are so in tune with their owner. Yes. The only reason, and we'll, let's get back on track where you were going with the, uh-huh. you know, with empathy. But like, I do think that we do have more of a, an attunement to read each other that way when we're a little more innocent when we're younger. But mm-hmm. as life goes on, I do believe that's dwindled away at, right? Because... We're we're in a world full of strategy and maneuvers. Kids don't yeah. deal in strategy and maneuvers. Kids deal and I call it like I see it. Yeah. My thing with the word empath, and I might be wrong. Maybe it's a word somewhere, but it, you're empathic, right? And that's that's one of your self states. I bet that if I catch you on a Sunday morning at five a.m. and knock on your door, you're not going to be empathic, right? You're, you you stop being an empath all of a sudden. What happened? Where are your powers? You know, you're, <laughs> someone being empathic is a thing. So the you point haven't I was, had your coffee yet. <laughs> exactly. Oh, is it, so it's the caffeine that makes you empathic. <laughs> no. you know, ginseng makes me feel certain things. I'm not going to call myself what it makes me feel. Oh, God. Oh, all right. So the whole whole deal with a word like me saying... A label. Narcissist, right? Narcissist has been uh, vilified, right? You say narcissist, it's like, oh, no. Kill them. Kill them all. (laughs) Uh, Narcissism is just a personality structure that comes as a result of our experiences, the same experiences we talked about earlier. Yeah. Right? Just like being borderline comes from certain things. Right? That's another one that's vilified. Thing is that narcissism calls attention, but that's a personality structure that I happen to have. It's similar it's similar to like when people like, Oh, you're so in your ego. We all have ego. We all have ego and sometimes it's actually there to serve our development. Not necessarily serve a specific situation, but if we're if we're conscious around the way our ego is operating in a situation and why, it actually can help us understand back to what you said before, the, the things that are moving us, the thoughts, the feelings, everything that's moving well, us. Yes, ego is our mediator, our consciousness, right? Anything we do, we're doing with our ego. In psychoanalysis, we speak about ego functions and if they're good or they're not good. 
they're deficient or they're operating well. We navigate the world and our inner world as well. Both these things through our ego. Not only does everyone have an ego, if you don't have a, an ego, you probably don't have a prefrontal cortex. It's, mm-hmm. it's the declarative part of our world. Everything you see from the way that shoes look to, oh, I have a little heartburn and I have to address this, or I'm really hungry. It's your ego that, that's doing that. Ego just means myself. That's It's just, a, it's like the id is it. I think this is actually the most important conversation you can have on things like borderline narcissism ego because when it comes down to it it's just bits and parts of what feel like our shadow side that we should be able to embrace and be aware of and not come to the world so shameful about so that we could actually utilize them and make make better choices with them yes i'll give you a snippet about narcissism narcissism is nothing more than a person who, uh, because of their experience, might consider themselves deficient in some ways and then compensated through others. That's just about as much as goes into narcissism. Can that go wrong? Absolutely. Can it end up in self-involvement to the point of excluding everything outside of yourself? Yeah. And when it's pathological. Well, yeah. And that's potentially where it becomes very hurtful to other people and dangerous. And when it's pathological, but yeah. anything can be pathological. You can be a pathologically empathic person. Absolutely. You can be a pathological <laughs> empath. So what, what if you, what, what if you dedicate yourself to the gratification of other people's needs and ignore your own? Uh, I, I just thought that was codependence. <laughs> playing out <laughs> well, there, there, there's an exchange there at least right yeah there's, yeah, right yeah. okay got it so anything can be pathological yes there are okay. people who are pathologically narcissistic just as there are people who pathologically eat hot dogs Ooh. so are we all just a little bit at least just a little bit narcissistic absolutely everybody has a measure of narcissism it's one of the stages there's something called primary narcissism that all babies go through randy's always saying it she's like children are narcissists <laughs> like, i'm like i get it like everything you know my son's five everything's like look at me look at this i'm the most important thing this is the most important experience and well, to, that's, that's yeah to an extent it's actually fun because you like simplify your pleasures but then sometimes you're like yeah that's, i got it you're jumping on one leg i got it childhood <laughs> omnipotence yeah right? they're they they're in an environment where not only are they the center but you know they're they're all powerful Let's talk about this because this draws back to something you had stated early on. So that's part of the natural life cycle, right? And if if our needs to fulfill that look at me, look at me aren't met, then that could potentially lead into adult forms of issues with narcissism, no? That's a good way to put it, issues with narcissism. Yeah, we all have yeah. It. You, you... I, I have issues with narcissism that make me achieve a lot of things. Exactly. Oh, my God, yeah. for sure. I mean, you look at the business world and CEOs, and I guarantee you there's plenty of people in their lives that are saying he's an effing narcissist, but he's also very so business-wise successful in his life. A lot of those folks are also psychopaths. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, we, and we use that word in the same way, like, oh, because when we hear the word psychopaths, we think of serial murderers and this and that. 
Yeah. A lot of surgeons are psychopaths. A lot of CEOs are psychopaths. Are they malignant? They're not. They're just structured that way. Right. Here's my question for you as a mental health professional. And since we're talking about narcissism, I come from the world of divorce. Um, I come from the world of solo parenting. In that world and community, you know, you're on these these groups on on social media or you follow these groups to get kind of like a connection to feeling self-identified through them so you feel better about the struggle you're going through. And the biggest term that always comes up is like you're dealing with your narcissistic ex. And, and so often the message is don't even try to meet them. Like don't even try to change their mind, meet them because it's a lose-lose battle. But what you're saying right now is the spectrum is so varied in terms of the issues you can have with narcissism. How do you know the person you're dealing with because you could potentially be co-parenting and you have no choice but to deal with them? How do you know if it's like one of those pathological cases where you can't, there's no hope, like minimal contact I should just veer away and say as little as possible, or maybe we can grow and learn from each other still through this process of raising this small human. That's super complicated because <laughs> that it's not just, it's about a person. It's not about the person's sort of narcissism or how it manifests with you. Yeah. And this is, this is a relational issue. There are elements of you that don't work with elements of him. They might work perfectly with another person. You're their trigger and yeah. Could be, you could be. Is it is it a healthy trigger? Maybe not, but that's not, you know, how it works. It's about, I don't know, let's say there's something about, like what I mentioned earlier about other people that might harken back to when I was a kid that I can't stand. I can't stand people that use Bluetooth speakers in the street. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Dude, I don't, my, I, my neighbors blast their music and we live in a quiet neighborhood. And I'm like, really? Like, we so got to listen to your music? <laughs> if if at least you're in a home, right? Because I deal with that here. Right? I live in a very noisy neighborhood. Uh, but they're in their home. I can't say or do anything about people living in their home. Mm -hmm. But if you're on the street or the subway yeah. Oh, yeah. and you're giving me a concert <laughs> with crappy music... <laughs> I don't. I, I can't stand that, and my, that might have something to do with. I was here in the '80s as a kid, and people had boomboxes, and I didn't oh. appreciate the boomboxes either. Maybe, or maybe these people with with the Bluetooth speakers are just being inconsiderate, and I don't like inconsiderate people. Right. It's the same thing with relationships, right? The way you cut your PB and J really grinds my gears, <laughs> and I don't know why, and I just hate it. And you, you know what? I can't. I can't be around you when you're cutting. The PB and J. Are yeah. you cutting off the crust? Are you a child? <laughs> Why are you cutting off the crust? That's a child's thing. I know this gets so layered and like complicated. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to psychoanalysis. My brain is running in all different directions. Um, so like, sure, that effing irks me the way you chew. But like, how at like. Because what you want to say is, okay, well, you're a grown-up and you have to self-assess yourself and say what your deal-breakers are. But, like, when do you self-assess yourself and say, what are my deal-breakers and are they actually reasonable? 
well, that's personal, right? What could be a deal breaker for me could be silly. I have silly deal breakers. I have really silly deal breakers. Give us one. The crust. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't eat no, no. That's a very American <laughs> thing. I don't. I don't deal with that stuff. But what would be a big deal breaker for me? I don't do well with very anxious people. Oh, you would not no. do well with either of us. <laughs> I don't do well. My thing about anxiety is, it's it. It takes up so much energy. And you have to be incredibly empathic to to navigate those moments. And I am an I am not the most patient person in the world. I can be patient with my patients. I'm very patient with my patients because the process takes a very long time. Mm-hmm. Do I want to do that outside of work? Mm-mm. I want peace outside of work. Right? My mother gave me peace at at any moment. Well, when I was younger, she gave me hell too because she was a mom alone she was a tough lady you gotta be (laughs) yes you have to be she gave me a great deal of peace my mother is also an incredibly anxious woman oh right and and as i got older that was difficult for me right she became very anxious after we left the nest which Mm -hmm. makes sense because she invested everything into these two kids you're a parent so angelica so you know that there is no peace after you have a child the, oh, the no. peace, <laughs> peace no is sleep, over. Sleep. There's no peace, and you never go to the bathroom alone again until they're like ten. <laughs> and then they're ten, and then they turn into teenagers. And when they're teenagers, you worry because they're teenagers. And when they're adults, you worry because they're adults. I never could identify my anxiety. I won't say I never had it. I probably just didn't allow it to fester up and drive me. But I couldn't identify my anxiety till. I won't even say till I had a kid. I was pretty easygoing early on. It was till I was doing it alone, like till my divorce. And then I was like, holy crap. With romantic partners for me, it's not about just if you have anxiety. Because saying I want someone that doesn't have anxiety, it's like saying I want someone who doesn't have a right arm. Right? Right. That's Everybody has anxiety. How does it manifest? Yeah. That's that's what it is. If it If the expectation is, and this is a not uncommon expectation that I'm going to be the person who, because I am your romantic partner, will be responsible for helping you regulate your anxiety every time. And you haven't gotten the tools to regulate them on your own. That's a problem for me because then I become an instrument Mm. that you depend on when you're anxious. If I'm going to be with anybody else ever again, doubtful. I would <laughs> I would hope that it's someone that was able that's why I, I would never date a younger person, right? I would need someone around my age range because hopefully by this age range you've found a way to make yourself happy. And my only job is to contribute to the happiness you already have. Healthy as that's what I dream of. <laughs> we all dream. That's why it's a dream. It's so rare. It's so rare. I, I also think like if you've been in a really long term relationship and then it ends, you're able to have that healthier perspective of desiring that. I think you have to go through it sometimes to know the beauty of that of just I just want to like be a healthy part of your life you be a healthy part of my life so but that that's 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 work right because once once these relationships end you have to fight the urges to jump into other things that might not be healthy you have to sit down with yourself 
study what happened, learn from these things and grow. You can overstudy too, though, right? Absolutely. I have a PhD in myself at this point. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm only saying it because like, I'm totally cock blocking my life right now. <laughs> Honestly, I've worked myself into a corner. My days are 12 hour days, right? My work days are 12 hour days. My personal days start at 5 a.m. Because if not, I won't know what exercise is. And they end maybe an hour to an hour and a half after my work day is over. Where are you going to find the space there to meet exactly. anybody? But are you cock blocking yourself? Well, I'm not into cocks, cock. but <laughs> I, am, I am definitely peach blocking myself for sure. <laughs> And, and that's where it's dangerous. When, when will I know that I'm ready, right? When will I stop putting stuff on my plate? And why am I still putting stuff on my plate? Yeah. Right? yeah. Am I defending against getting hurt again by engaging in what makes me a quote unquote narcissist, which is let me achieve more things and then I'll be ready and then I'll be better or whatever, mm. instead of just getting out there again. Like I'm perfectly fine the way I am. Well, it's also like, and I think you said this to me, Randy, like you're not gonna, or maybe it was my sister. I'm not sure. Someone said it to me recently. Um, Cause I, part of me was like, I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself to pick someone who's not gonna do the things they did yeah. in the prior situations. And they're like, you can sit in this little world that you've isolated yourself to with work, with being a mom and keep telling yourself that, that you don't have the time, you don't have the energy, mm -hmm. or you can put yourself in the situations and find out if you could trust yourself. Yeah. That wasn't me. What <laughs> it makes sense. You, how are you going to test out? How are you going to test right. out what you learned about yourself after the last breakup? Exactly. You have yeah. to be able to walk into a situation and even if it's two days in, be like, no, nope, this isn't it. I got to go. Even if that means being alone for another couple of years. Yeah. What a lot of us do is I've been so lonely for so long and this person's paying me attention. Mm -hmm. Oh, red flag. Maybe it's just one red flag. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to be able to, to walk away. The thing about relationships is you obviously can't control other people's behavior, right? Or the yeah. way they're going to be, but you can most definitely control your reactions. That's like the grounding force to, I think, any adversity or anything you're facing in life is like to just yeah. be like, okay, I can't control this, but how am I responding and how can I root myself? Right. That highlights the importance of the self-awareness we talked about before, right? Where it's like, how important is it? I think it's step one, but it's a very important step because we can't really control falling back into the same habits or patterns. But once we are aware that we're in that pattern again, we now have the agency of mind to say, this is not it. This is not me. Not now. Not ever. You know, mm -hmm. and that, I mean, it's easier said than done. But yeah, that takes some time to get there. And work. Yeah. It's not just therapy. If you walk into a therapist's office and it's not a he's not a mechanic. Right. Right. Randy's not a mechanic. I'm not a mechanic. We don't take parts out and put new ones in and then you're going to walk out and that's it. We yeah. give you, we give you information and we give you tools. It's up to you to use that information and to use those tools. And if you don't, then you're just going to see me for years and years and years. And you're going to hear a lot of the same things from different perspectives. But the reason we make these things conscious and actionable is so you can take action on them. That's right.
And yeah, I can speak for myself being with my therapist for six years and going, I think three of those years was one very specific pattern. And she was so patient, right? She's like, okay, I'll support you. You're you're back in it. I'm here with, I'm here for the ride. But the one thing she said to me that stuck out really, really changed like the route for me was, you know, she said, I will support you either way if you're going down this route again, but I will tell you the longer you stay in this pattern, the harder it's going to be to get out of. And that for me was just like a light bulb, like, holy shit, you're right. If I don't start practicing this now, we're going to be here for the next 10 years. And that shifted a route for me. So it is your choice, right? Once you have the awareness, it's what are you going to do with this? Yeah, you have to do the work. I can't do the work for you. And that I think is the most powerful thing, like to to be handed, you are capable. Yeah. And then, you know, you're teaching a man to fish, basically. Or woman. <laughs> or woman, you're right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we also, Damn. I don't know if you guys noticed, we very automatically gendered narcissism before. We were saying he a lot. I, was like, I know. Sorry, Will. <laughs> it's fine. I'm used to it. With narcissistic I'm, I'm used to it. We're going to wrap things up, but there is one one other thing. Just because Randy had told me prior to us hopping on that you had gone through a divorce, speaking to other people who have been through it, and I think because of the nature of all the moving parts of divorce, it is by far one of the loneliest processes in an adult life. Yes. Because you have... A, the business of the dismantling of the relationship that's happening in like this theatrical stage of court or the legal system but then you have all this emotional crap that you have to like place aside and be careful who you share it with because it's used against you in the court of law <laughs> and so you have all these like shelled individuals going through this really painful emotional thing and they have to just hold face publicly. And it is so damn lonely. It is very lonely. So the thing about me is this. I, there are more dimensions to me than just psychoanalysis or being a therapist. I'm very into philosophy. Mm. And the philosophy that I adhere to most out of life circumstances was stoicism before it became popular and everybody was like, oh, oh yeah, stoicism, yeah, yeah. stoicism, stoicism. Ryan, uh, who is it that's doing a big <laughs> Ryan Holiday and Ryan modern Holiday. Stoicism. So I, yeah, 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 yeah. I actually went to an institute and learned traditional stoicism hmm. years and years. And it's been very useful for me in my personal life. You, one of the things you learn is taking everything and finding proper use for it, hmm. right? Suffering can have proper use. You can make it useful. It's like uh, Viktor Frankl, right? He made incredible suffering yeah. useful. James Bond Stockdale made it useful. Sure. When I separated from my wife, the first year was hell because this I didn't separate from a person I didn't love. It wasn't like that. I separated from a person that in those circumstances didn't work out. It just didn't work out for me. It didn't work out for her. And we decided to divorce. The first year, I had very little contact with my wife, my ex-wife. And I took that year to build myself up, cut down my drinking. I started exercising. I started reading more. That's when I started getting up at five in the morning to exercise, stuff wow. like that. I stopped having orange teeth after my daughter made that comment. <laughs> 
I focused more. And then about a year after we separated, I started hanging out with my ex-wife again. I said, I can do that. She would ask, like, oh, you want to come over? You want to watch a movie? It's like, sure. We divorced as a husband and wife, but we never stopped being best friends. And she's still, to this day, my best friend. That's remarkable, yeah. though. Yeah. I mean, that takes a high level of not just being self-aware, but like just accepting of this is what this situation is and we're not you know like we're not gonna hold each other the villain for what happened and, and that takes two yeah right yeah. and initially the one that was capable of something like that was her i was not capable mm. of that in the beginning mm. there was no anger there was a lot of sorrow but it took me a year of being alone and, and maturing during that year enough to get to the level that she was at where we could continue being best friends. She's amazing. She is the kindest, most wonderful person you could ever meet. And she still wanted to be friends and try it. And I just didn't have the maturity or the capacity for it until a year later. So it can be either the most terrible thing in the world, or it could be a collection of extraordinarily useful and wonderful lessons, depending on if the circumstances let you approach it in a benign way. I was lucky. Not everybody is as lucky as I was in having married and divorced and still remaining best friends with someone as wonderful as her. You might have had to divorce because the other person was not as wonderful. I've had a different experience, but it doesn't, it hasn't taken away from my own ability. And this goes back to like, being in control of what you're capable of doing. You can't control someone else. Like I have just really been focused on all the way through like what can I get from this but that's just my like that's how I operate in life regardless like I'm always looking for okay this was the experience yeah what can I gain from it and I wasn't perfect in that relationship it takes two but yeah I I think even if you're in a situation more like mine where there's not going to be a friendship you could still walk away from divorce itself and use it to to bring yourself up to to drive you forward in a positive light it takes a little more self-control because <laughs> you don't have someone else like who's also doing it and you can but yeah, yeah. you have drives urges needs and sorrow all in one situation a whole bunch of regret and self-blame blaming the other and yeah. until the dust settles with all those things and you find ways to cope with the needs because you don't stop being human because you got divorced. You know, after a relationship, what you what you can deal with and, and what you can't. I think it was Alain de Bouton when he was talking about relationships. He talked about our approach to relationships being a little funny because of what we, we moved away from classical romance, which was more convenience and figuring out how you can fit with the other person. Mm. And now we fall in love with with love, which is the initial stage, which is the nothing is wrong. Everything is perfect. Mm -hmm. You attribute all sorts of wonderful things to the other person and you obscure a ton of others so that it fits. And then once that is over, because eventually if you have hamburger every day, you're not going to want to stare at hamburger. You have to focus on the fries. Maybe you don't like the fries. So what makes relationships work for 
that's the, when you get out of the four-year capsule it's it's time to jump <laughs> thanks uh, this is my therapy to, session <laughs> it's you have to, well. <laughs> we all we all have to figure out does my kind of crazy fit with that person's kind of crazy yeah well Alfred Crowley calls those our pain bodies right? pain bodies please, please say more Randy I wasn't aware of these pain bodies I know about pain and I know about bodies but... <laughs> Well, I can totally, he references our pain bodies. My conceptualization of it is it's our childhood trauma, right? It's our defense mechanisms. It's how we show up in the world and relationships. And like you said, you know, does our pain body, our trauma kind of fit with, you know, the puzzle piece with someone else's? Um, Some fit a little bit better than others. Some also fit in a very maladaptive way. Right. Like you have like the victim of, you know, childhood abuse with the abuser again and again, their puzzle mm-hmm. pieces fit, their pain bodies fit in a very maladaptive way. Um, and then on the flip side, you have the individuals who have done the work, created the awareness and realized like, well, I don't, I don't know if it's picking a different puzzle piece, but maybe it's actually modifying your puzzle piece. Just based off what you said, to find someone who's crazy compliments are crazy, but hopefully in a benign way. Right. Right. That I need uh, I need the kind of woman that has the kind of crazy that likes short brown guys and, and other things that I like that I won't say on air. Randy <laughs> knows them. Randy knows them. She's heard me speak for years. Um, so what I, I, I'm now going to make this my therapy because I, I love all the insight from Will. But would it make sense if I told you I, you know, played out my story so often with men as far as dating my mom and my dad and trying to fix all of their issues and getting them to love me the way my mom and dad didn't. And that was so extreme. And that was so, um, so there was so much turmoil that then I went the complete opposite side of the spectrum and started dating men that had like no personality, <laughs> like, like nothing. Yes. And it was so mild and boring that, I mean, I was actually okay with it, but they weren't on the flip side. And that's a whole other story. But does that make sense that I just like went to the other side of the spectrum? The and- pendulum swinging to correct yeah, itself. Yeah, those, <laughs> those overcompensations happen a lot. And then people tend to end up back where they started, yeah. right? Because oh, they notice no. it's like, it doesn't... How do but, we get in the middle? What? <laughs> yeah, but you can't get in the middle until you know what the other extreme is. Right. Yeah. right? I've been... I have the same kind of person over and over. And then a couple of times, because, you know, I'm hard-headed. A couple of times I went the complete opposite route and it was terrible, right? Because there was no passion for me. Yeah. And if there's no passion in a relationship, then I'm a dull little man. I'm not happy. (laughs) There's no will is dull. Never. Can't imagine it. There is. And it's terrible. It's (laughs) terrible. So I I went the other direction, kind of the way Randy mentioned. But I was bored. I was bored uh, in conversation. Sexually, I was very bored. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. I, I, li- I like firecrackers. Yes. And I like women that are passionate. Yeah. You know, claw marks and all that stuff that I used to love <laughs> when I was in my twenties. <laughs> yeah. Because that—that's what makes me feel desired. Oh, they want me so bad they want to rip my skin off. Oh my God. Yeah? Not always. I have very sensitive skin. I can't be doing it all the time. But, uh, but inevitably, those very passionate people don't work out for some reason. So then eventually end up going back to someone who's very warm and nurturing and so loving. What, what's your plan moving forward to Uh-oh. 
to hone it in. I wish everyone could see his face right now. So, so, so you're so you're assuming I have a plan. I don't, you know. <laughs> well, no, I'm just being the introspective person you are, and I I'm saying it because maybe I'm trying to figure out what my plan should be. But <laughs> but like. <laughs> I am. How are I am you going to navigate this? this? <laughs> I am talking about this in my therapy right now, where I've okay. been alone. I've been alone for a while, and I don't even know how to go about it anymore. Right? I don't. I don't do apps because I'm oh, like they're terrible. Yeah, it's like I don't. First of all, no, and. Well, I, I also believe in pheromones. Like, I think you physically have to be around a person to know if you're attracted to them. Yeah, but I don't um, even know where to go. Exactly. To go. That's the problem, right? Like, there's nowhere uh, to go. There, And then, like, how... Most of the time when I'm in public, I'm with my kid and I'm not going to be like, hey. <laughs> 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 you know? <laughs> so... I became single again and the world has been different, right? I don't have the brass to approach a woman anymore, right? When I was younger, you could approach a woman, say some dumb shit and she'll be like, dismiss you. And yeah, you're like, all right, yeah. well, she didn't, like, she didn't like the short guy, so I'm gonna keep it moving. You know, nowadays I'm fearful, right? I approach, it's like, I'm being harassed by this little man, canceled him forever, he's no good. <laughs> He said I right? have beautiful hair. How dare you pay me attention with your eyes? <laughs> oh my God. So I have, first of all, I have to figure that out, right? Because I definitely don't want to offend anybody. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of the things that I grew up with might now you be offensive. You need new tools, Will. I do, tools. Need, I do need new tools. Uh, the other thing is keeping my mind open. I had a very limited my parameters were so tight that it's close to impossible for me to find someone under those parameters. Mm. So like I wouldn't date, it was just oh, close to impossible. So now I'm trying to be more open. I had a friend that made me realize that like, you know, they don't all have to be Dominican. See my, my parameters were like way too open. <laughs> I'm learning the opposite. I see. You're, you're, you're reining it standards. in. Reining it in. So, and my sister, my sister also tells me all the time, like, you know, why don't you try dating this kind of people? It's like, I've never dated anything other than someone that's from where I'm from. Wow. Right. Or, or at the most, whose parents are from where I'm from, which right. is definitely not the same thing. I learned that as well. So that and a friend from work, the job I'm at now made me see like, okay, so there is no like real danger in, in, dating different kinds of people and seeing what that's like and that sort of thing. It's also like, try it on, like, and don't get in too deep. And if it doesn't work, yeah. then cool. I tried it like right. that. Yeah. Don't, don't get invested uh, as soon as you walk in, you know? but I don't even know where to try it out. I know that's, uh, that's we're back thing. to that. Cause I'm in the same situation where I'm like, I don't know where to meet anyone. And, the, like, and there's still <laughs> parameters I have. Like I, I, yeah. I, I, I prefer certain things and I don't know where to find that. And also I, I'm very busy. What do I have to offer time-wise? I have to sort of finish some things. All right. Well, tell us, tell us some of your basic parameters. And where they can find you on Instagram, and we'll start there. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. So, 
my Instagram is private. It, uh. So if, even if they find it, even if they find it, they can't get in. Can't slide oh. into the DMs. <laughs> you can't slide into my DMs. Well, you're awesome. Well, thank you. We appreciate thank the you. time you gave us. Likewise, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you everyone for joining us for this episode of Cracked Up. Angelica and I are very excited for future episodes where we are going to talk about a variety of issues, mental health related, addiction, recovery, childhood trauma. We'd love to hear from you guys. If you have any feedback, any requests on topics you want to hear or learn about, please find me at Randy Mental Health on Instagram. My handle is Randy spelled R-A-N-D-I underscore mental health underscore. Angelica, where can everyone find you? You can also find me on Instagram. I'm at Jella Hester. That's Jella, G-E-L-L-A. No space, Hester, H-E-S-T-E-R. Thanks again for joining us and we'll talk to you next week. This podcast is presented solely for educational and entertainment purposes. It is not intended as a substitute for any type of medical advice.